This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at four, as you no doubt know by now, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions. Questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it. Questions that you're struggling with uh, in your Bibles. Questions that you may be struggling with just in something that you're going through in life. Uh, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can call us toll-free if you're outside the local area at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the call now uh, button on our, on the app and you will be connected directly to our studio. We love to have your calls. It's always a better program. Hey, because today's Wednesday, we got a couple things going on here. I always like to keep you informed about a really, really important study tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 26. In fact, going through 1 Samuel this time, it's been more than, I think, 10 or 12 years before or, or since I've been uh, taught through 1 Samuel again um, uh, since the last time. Um, but it gets more practical and more real every time. So today we're in chapter 26, 1 Samuel, um, David's greatest test up to this point in his life. And, um, and there's a lot of practical value for us in this chapter. So that's tonight. Uh, tomorrow, because it's Thursday, Paula will be live in the studio with me on the date day edition of the program. So ladies, that's your day to... Um, call to be encouraged whatever you have need of paula will be here to help you out one more time three four zero ninety five eighty five let's go to some questions uh, mary wrote in and she said is co-signing a loan for kids or friend something that is okay to do mary i never make uh, people happy when i say this but the answer is no 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 a thousand times no um you know sometimes i think if somebody can't get a loan on their own um, I, I think that's maybe God's way of stopping them. Um, why do we want to go into debt? Why do we want to encourage them to live uh, by buying things that they can't afford? Uh, so, so I don't think it's a good thing. I understand that it feels unloving. It feels sort of harsh. Um, but um, just letting children especially go into debt uh, is something that's really, really not uh, a good thing. Now, from a biblical perspective, 
I'll just read two Proverbs. There's six of them that deal with this. Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 3 says, My son, if you put up surety or security for your neighbor, if you've struck hands in pledge for another, if you've been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself since you've fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Proverbs 11:15. He who puts up security for another will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to strike hands in pledge is safe. So, Mary, it's just something that we ought not to do, and when we do it, because it makes us feel better or because we'd feel like we weren't loving if we didn't, what would happen is uh, we, we end up trapping ourselves. So it's just not a good practice to get into. This is one of those things where we have to decide whether or not we trust our emotions or the Word of God, and it's always, always, always better to trust what the Word says. So uh, it's just not something that we ought to do. So I hope that helps you, Mary. And for those of you who think that's just so unkind, um, forgive me, but that's the Bible. Your problem's with it, not with me. Let's go to line one, talk with Kelly calling from San Antonio. Kelly, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Mom. Um, I have a simple question, and I'm going to take your response off the air. Um, I just wanted to know what advice would you give to a new believer? And I'm asking because I know when I was a new believer, and I know now that I was under some false teaching because I was under the impression that my whole entire life would change. But nothing really changed for me. You know, in fact, things had gotten a little bit rougher for me. Um, and I just want to know, like, when I encounter a new believer, what advice should I give them or what should I tell them to be looking out for? And I'll take your answer offline. Thank you, Kelly. I, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the heart behind the question. Two things. First, um, the, the answer is always the same. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. They've got to know who Jesus is. Now, none of us are born with discernment. When we're born again, we we have the Holy Spirit who will discern for us. But still, we have such limited knowledge um, and, and zero experience. So when we get born again, we've got to first invest in knowing who Jesus is. And the only place to do that is in the Word and then, of course, in a good Bible teaching church. Um, not a false doctrine church. There's a whole bunch of them. So it's very, very important. They've got to know. And here's something that's supernatural that's going to happen. You know, when I tell new believers that, they say, well, I don't understand the Bible. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we have to understand that now the Holy Spirit lives in you, and that will change. And we have to tell them to be patient. Transformation doesn't occur overnight. They have to unlearn all the bad things so that they can learn the new things, the wonderful things. But this is where they trust God. God will take them through a process where they'll begin to be able to hear his voice speaking to them in his word. And he'll reveal more and more of himself to them. And that's the whole point. So there's no quick, easy answer. There's no cliff notes of the Bible. What we have to do is let God learn uh, or, or learn to let God speak to us, rather. And if we'll do that, God will answer questions. God is the one who will cause the growth in the believer, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. Now, it's much easier to go to other people. It's also much easier to tune in um, people that will say what you want them to hear, what, what you want to hear. You know, if, uh, for instance, uh, Kelly, when I first got saved... 
uh, every problem I had in my life was was financial. I mean, I, there were other problems, but that was the overwhelming problem. Uh, I owed everybody money. Uh, my life had fallen apart uh, so radically. And, and from the appearance of circumstances, the only thing that was going to help was money. So I spent a whole bunch of time listening to people that told me God wanted me to be rich. That was wrong. Uh, I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how God was going to enrich me because I just knew that God was going to answer my prayers. Um, but who I needed to know was Jesus. And as I got to know Jesus, I began to be able to rest in his power, I began to be able to, to, to learn to be content even in the middle of really, really difficult um, trials and tests. You know, I mentioned, Kelly, that tonight we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 26. And if you just read the circumstances in the chapter, it looks like David's getting a bum deal. It looks like, like uh, he's being unfairly persecuted. All that's true. But he's also being prepared slowly, minute by minute, hour by hour, to be the king that God has prepared for the people of Israel. So we have to be patient. And we've got to just dig in more and more and more and more of Jesus. So that's what the new believer has to do. Now, often with new believers, Kelly, they don't want to do that because their problems are so immediate, so urgent, at least seemingly so. Well, they need to learn to trust God because God is the one who's going to show off for them. And they've got to learn to trust him because if they don't learn to trust him, they'll keep trying to make things work on their own. So that's the most important thing you can tell somebody. Uh, the way they are didn't happen overnight, and the transformation to be more like Jesus won't happen overnight. But it will happen uh, on God's timetable if, in fact, we'll simply learn to know who he is. We'll rest in what he's done. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more like him we'll be. One other comment, Kelly, that you made in regard to uh, when you got saved, things got harder. When a new believer um, confesses Jesus Christ, there's a whole new element of difficulty that enters their life. And that element of difficulty, of course, is supernatural warfare, spiritual warfare. There's an enemy who's angry. He's lost somebody's soul. And so he's angry, and he tries to kill babies. Believe me, the devil has always tried to kill babies. He tried to kill Jesus. Um, he tried to kill Moses. He's always trying to kill babies. So when somebody's a baby Christian, they're never more vulnerable, at least from the devil's perspective, than then. And so this whole new element of spiritual warfare comes into play. And that's what we've got to prepare people for, but unfortunately, at least from the perspective of many new believers, um, learning takes some time, as I mentioned earlier. Learning who Jesus is, learning what he's done, being able to rest in what he's done, growing, increasing your faith. That takes some time, and it doesn't make your problems go away. Here's what I can say to anybody who's under spiritual attack. Jesus loves you. He's fighting with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you hold on to that, you will see God moving on your behalf. We're so tempted to take matters into our own hands. We've got to learn to sit back and trust God. Let him do whatever it is he's going to do. We've got to be okay with that.
So, Kelly, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I wish somebody would have told me that right at the beginning. I could have saved myself more than a year of chasing false teaching. And in the process, I would have spared Paula from some of the horrible things that I exposed her to because I was excited thinking this was the right way. So we just have to slow down, be patient, and understand that Jesus is enough. Thank you, Kelly. 340-9585. Here's an interesting question from Albert. I was wondering if Christians should buy things like insurance. Is it a lack of faith in God? No, Albert, it's not. You know, Jesus said that we're to occupy until he comes. And what that means is uh, we do what we're called to do. We plan for a future, even if that future isn't going to be realized. By that, I mean the rapture. I've said this on this program a thousand times. The rapture could come at any moment. But if I plan my life as though the rapture is not going to be happen, uh, not going to happen while I'm still alive, then the people who will outlive me are going to be taken care of. And insurance is just one example. Health insurance. I've been going uh, or have gone through this year some health issues. Um, if I didn't have some form of health insurance, uh, it, it could have been, maybe would have been catastrophic. Not only that, but life insurance. Um, I fully expect Paula to outlive me. And I've seen firsthand what's happened um, when uh, women are left suddenly um, without their husbands. And then they've got to sort of navigate the mess that uh, that their their husband's life was in, or they're trying to focus on on questions that they're not prepared for. I, I want to be sure that Paul is taken care of when I'm gone. So no, insurance is a lack of faith. Insurance, in that sense, is an expression of love and of kindness and caring. So uh, yeah, we 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 live like Jesus isn't going to come back. At the same time, we live like He is going to come back. Now I know that doesn't make sense to a lot of you. But we live like we're in it for the long haul, all the while secretly hoping that Jesus is going to be here at any moment. So, Albert, thanks for the question. Uh, let's go to Chris calling from New Brumfels. Chris, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Pastor Ron. Thank you so much for taking my call. I really mm-hmm. look forward to uh, your answering this question for me or, or just uh, talking about it. Uh, I'm kind of confused on in the role of husband being a leader of the family. And I say that because I know it says that husbands are supposed to be the spiritual leader uh, of the family. But I talk to, to married guys in my church, and, and they're, it seems they're, what they're telling me seems to be like, well, whatever wife wants, wife gets, and to the point where husbands seem to be subservient to the wife. And I, I'm just kind of confused biblically where we're it stands on how husbands are supposed to be leaders or, or what they're not supposed to do in regards to a, a, a marriage. Yeah, I can do that. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, whenever I get asked to, to talk about this, it's, it's so important that I'm understood. So I'm going to be very, very careful with my choice of words. Um, while the husband is the spiritual head of the house, um, the wife is the partner. And we're to love and lead our wives the way Jesus loved and led the church. Now, that means he is in control 
Uh, he's the one who ultimately has the, the final say-so. At the same time, Jesus partners with us in everything that he does. So being a leader means that you set your home, not just your wife, but your home, on a path to righteousness. It means that you establish good habits, good patterns in your home, uh, Bible study and prayer. Those kind of things are really, really important. Um, it means that you're ultimately responsible to present your wife before the Lord, holy and blameless, without flaw. And you can only do that, Paul says, by washing her with the water of the word. Now, being a leader doesn't make you boss. Being the leader just makes you the head, the one who's the most accountable you know, we men, we have a tendency to love the woman submit to me passages. At the same time, we're unwilling to accept the responsibility, the accountability that go along with being the head. Now, your comment, and I love the way you phrased it, pretty much it makes the husband subservient. Whatever the wife wants, the wife gets. That's the most unloving thing that we can do. Now, just use an example, um, um, a hypothetical example, Chris, uh, from my own home. If Paula was behaving in an ungodly way, um, I owe her and I owe God telling her that she can't act that way. If she's got some difficulties, we have to talk through those things and we have to talk through them to resolution. Our job isn't to let our wives sin. Our job isn't let her, to let our wives be spiritually lazy. Our job certainly isn't to, to let our wives or force our wives to make all the decisions. So what we do is we sit down and we talk about those things. Now, I, I'm blessed. I'm married to the most godly person that I know. And yet, if she would have one of those moments where she is thinking wrongly about somebody that God loves or if she was behaving in a way that didn't bring honor to the Lord it'd be one of those times we'd have to sit down and talk about those things so being a leader means being the head servant but it also means being Jesus' representative when choices have to be made here's what being the leader means in my home if I have to make a decision uh, I have to be able to represent to Paula that this is what God's heart is. This is what I think God wants us to do. But rather than dictate to her that this is what we're going to do, then I would ask her to pray about it, remembering that she's my partner. She's not my assistant manager or my employee. She's my partner. And I would give her the confidence, Chris, of knowing that if God doesn't speak to her, we're not going to do this until he does. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? When there are differences of opinion, the leader of the house sits down with an open Bible with his wife and says, here's what the Bible says. You see, the husband's opinion, the wife's opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what the Word of God says. And if you and your wife, Chris, and, and you can tell this to the other men who say pretty much what wife wants, wife gets, that is ungodly, by the way. Um, that's what got us in this mess in the first place. Um, Eve ate the forbidden fruit so Adam joined her my wife your wife deserves to know that the next step we take as men is bathed in prayer 
and to the best of our ability to discern is the will of God and then you bring your wife into partnership in it now immediately the problem is well what if my wife doesn't want to do these things well see that's why we read together that's why we study together that's why we pray together so that God can knit our hearts together a man who is the leader of his home should never have to say submit to me the man who knows Jesus loves Jesus and loves his wife the way Jesus loved the church will never have any difficulty getting his wife to submit to his leadership let me add one other thing Chris and this is something I think husbands need to explain and that's why studying the Bible together is so valuable it takes great faith to submit to leadership to authority the Roman centurion Jesus scolding his own disciples said I've not found such great faith in all of Israel he's talking about a Gentile And all because this centurion, this Roman, understood authority. He knew what it was like to be in authority, so he knew that he was under authority. And these are lessons that are really important to communicate. So it's not a whatever she wants, she gets. In fact, as I said, that's the most unloving thing that we can do. Passive men, I want to be careful how I say this. Passive men expose their families to great danger. Now, we don't need to be loud. We don't need to be arrogant. What we need to be is full of the Spirit of God because our job is to protect our wives and our children from harm. And when we are passive, I'll never understand, and it happens in our church all the time, I never understand why one person in the marriage, either the wife or the husband, is able to dictate sort of the spiritual temperature of the house. Our house has got to be given over to the Lord. The joy of the Lord is found in His presence. If Jesus is going to be comfortable in our homes, Chris, then we've got to be sure that we're rightly representing Him and that we are a right reflection of Him. And so when there are issues in the home between a husband and a wife, just to let them go unresolved because you don't want to rock the boat is to miss the point altogether. Conflict, differences of opinions are inherent in every relationship. But if there's a foundation by which we can settle those differences, those conflicts, then it's our responsibility to use those opportunities to find out what God says. If a husband and a wife, I'll close with this, Chris, if a husband and wife can say this one thing, We agree together to agree with Jesus. Then there has to be, doesn't have to be any more problems. So Chris, thanks for asking. I hope that answers your question. Perhaps you can call or write in if you need any more clarity on that uh, on another program. 340-9585. I think we're inside three minutes uh, for this half of the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. Uh, here's one I think I can do in a couple of minutes. Paul wants to know. Oh, no, let's go to a phone call. We can do this. Let's go to Wes in Johnson City. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, I was wanting to talk to you and 
about uh, the church, uh, Kelly called in earlier, and she was talking about her struggle since she's become a Christian. And um, one thing I'd like to add to what you had told her was uh, discipleship. And, um, you know, to me, discipleship means so much to a new believer, and it can really carry them into uh, their future, to their destiny. And um, one thing I wanted to say is in a lot of the churches, what I've experienced is a lack of fellowship. And I know there's not a perfect church and, you know, we're imperfect and blah, blah, blah. But uh, God put it on my heart some time ago about this fellowship in the church. And there was a time when it was okay to come to church Get your praise on, hear the word, meet, and goodbye. But after a few years of this, I knew there had to be something more. And I started realizing these people that I'm going to church with, I don't know them. And it just seemed so superficial. And then I'm, you know, I was listening to Kelly, the girl that called in earlier, and I knew that was such a vital part of uh, my uh, growth was having someone I could uh, sharpen iron with and that would get me uh, going the right direction. And uh, my comment would be, you know, if there's not a very good fellowship or if it's not promoted in the church, how are you going to have discipleship? Yep. Anyway, I love your point. Yeah, and I'll comment on those on the other side of the break. I think that was a great, uh, great question, and I think it'll open up a lot of doors here. Um, Thanks for calling. Uh, We've got 30 minutes left on the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We will be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half, the last half. We saved the best for last of the Word to Stand On for Life. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I want to comment on uh, the comment that Wes made Um we had a caller earlier, Kelly, who wanted to know uh, what kind of counsel do we give to new believers? Uh, she indicated that her life got harder when she got saved, and that's uh, something that I think a lot of us have discovered uh, when that spiritual warfare element gets included. And Wes used two words that, um, that, that really struck a chord in my heart. Uh, he said that it, it seems superficial. The fellowship seems superficial. And whenever I think of superficial fellowship, Wes and to everybody else out there, it's always for one reason. It's because we have turned church into a spectator event instead of a participatory event. Now, nowhere in the Word are we told about discipleship the way Americans do discipleship. Nowhere in the Word. Um, Discipleship in the Bible 
happens in the body of Christ while we serve together, while we study together, while we worship together, while we pray together. And I think too many of us are looking for discipleship, we call it friendship, without commitment. So as Wes indicated, and I love that he said this, he said, you know, you went, you worshipped, and you studied, and you hung out for a little bit, then you went home, that was okay for a time, but then that gets old because it seems so empty. So here's what every Christian needs to do. You need to be committed not casually. You need to be committed, heart and soul, to serving in your church. Now, I, I, I only have our church as an example, so I'm going to kind of give you the model that we have here. You know, we are, we, we're in a little tiny building, uh, but we have lots and lots of people. I don't know how many people come to church here, but, but uh, we have well over a thousand adults that call this their church home. But inside our church... We have dozens upon dozens of little groups. Uh, our Saturday morning cleaning crew, just as an example. It's hard to kick these people out of here Saturday morning when they're done because they're hanging around, they're fellowshipping, they spend time together away from church. They've become close with one another. They interact with one another on social media. So they made those connections by serving. They're invested in a particular ministry, and that's where the really close friendships come. Uh, we, we have our, our usher ministry as an example. Uh, these people become friends. Uh, worship ministries of all types, those people, they're here for worship rehearsals. They're here for the Bible studies that accompany it. And so they've got their own little group. They're never disconnected. We've got people that work in children's ministry. We have over 100 ministries here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And every group, committed people in that group, they get connected to one another. And in the process, not only are they being able to minister to others, they're being ministered to themselves. And lifelong friendships, deep in the Lord friendships, result and any time, every time, that somebody says, well, this church isn't friendly, or there's no way people want to go out and just hang out, uh, it's because they're not connected. In our church culture, people stay on the fringes and complain about the things they're excluded from. It's common to hear people accuse churches of having cliques. Well, our cliques aren't cliques of people. Our cliques are cliques of servants. And it's natural to have people serving in the same ministry together to hang out together. At the same time, in those ministries, we encourage them to reach out to others to bring them into their groups. Why? Because Wes was right, we need genuine fellowship. But the fellowship is fellowship around the church and in the church. You know, we're in the book of Acts on Friday nights. I, uh, I'm going to finish Acts chapter 5 this week, so we're right at the beginning. And in the early church, those people had no place else to go. The church was entirely Jewish converts, and there was thousands of them. They couldn't go home because they were cut off from their families. They couldn't go to the synagogue, which was the Jewish center for social life. They couldn't participate in the economy that happened in and around the, simple, the, the synagogue or the temple. 
So they had nowhere else to go. So what did they do? They spent all day together in prayer, in worship, in the study of the word, ministering one to another. They didn't go to church like we do for 90 minutes. You know, Wes, and again, for everybody else out there, what we've done to the church as family is horrible because we've really reduced church life to that 90 minutes on Sunday, and there are churches who made it even easier. They just figure, well, we want people to be comfortable coming, so we're going to keep them for an hour. That's not the church of the New Testament. So it's not about iron sharpening iron in the sense that we need one-on-one discipleship. The closest we come to one-on-one discipleship in the New Testament is Jesus with his inner circle. He prepared them. They prepared the others. And that's the way a church is supposed to work. And too often we're looking for God to do things instead of being eager to join in on what God is already doing. I tell our church here, Wes, and maybe this will help. I tell people at our church all the time, when you feel like an outsider, find somebody who's really on the inside. And by that, I don't mean close to the pastor or somebody who knows the, the, the ropes. I mean somebody who's obviously full of Jesus and stick close to him. We have shy people, women especially here at church, and I'll tell them, well, just follow Paul and do what she does. That's all we have to do. And then it's God actually doing the leading. When we move a few more chapters in the book of Acts, we're going to find that authority is delegated when problems arise. And people have to depend on the Holy Spirit to figure out what to do. We've so westernized church it's it's more of a social club church isn't what we do church is who we are and anybody in this listening audience who isn't serving at their church if first of all if you're not in church you're you're getting ripped off the enemy has blinded you and he's picking your pocket you're unaware you need to be in church you need to be active in church favorite thing that's ever happened to me in all these years, and this is important, so I'm taking some time with it. Twelve years ago, a man asked if he could make an appointment with me, brand new in church. And I said, sure. Made an appointment, came in. I said, so what's on your heart? And he said, well, nothing. I'm just here. He introduced himself to me, and he said, I'm reporting for duty. I want you to think about that. He's brand new in the church. I'm reporting for duty. Whatever you need, I'll do. And I said, well, why don't we get to know each other just a little bit? In the meantime, you can do this, you can do that. You know, for 12 years, that man has been serving so faithfully. Not just him, his whole family. And it's because he reported for duty. That's what happens we really 
are led by the Lord to the church that he wants us to be at. So that's how we are discipled. By the teaching of the Word, by the Holy Spirit, and by getting our hands dirty sometimes and serving. And if there's any service in your church, every time, our announcer on Sundays, he says, uh, we highlight a ministry, uh, it just takes a minute. Uh, if, if needs come up, like we get military transfers a lot and stuff, so he'll say, well, we've had some people leave this ministry, so if you've got, uh, right now the video um, ministry is, is one that that uh, we've had some people in the military that transferred out, so we've got to replace them. Every time you hear in church that there's a need, you ought to go report for duty. If you'll do that, I promise you, the Lord will use you. Thanks, Wes, for bringing that up. That's a great and a really important subject. Let's go to Lake Hills, Texas, and talk with Christian on Line 1. Christian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello. I just want to see what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Okay, I can tell you that. Christian, can I ask how old you are? Nine. Nine years old. Great question. Christian, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Holy Spirit's work in this world and in your heart until you die. So here's what it means. If the Holy Spirit's job is to come and tell you about Jesus, and you reject Jesus, and say you reject him your whole life, and you live and then suddenly you die, if you have rejected Jesus your whole time, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, That's the only unforgivable sin because Jesus is the only answer for sin. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit pointing to Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate it very, very much. Nine years old asking great questions. Keep reading your Bible, Christian. That does my heart good. 340-9585 to Christians, mom and dad. God bless you guys. Jesus is pleased. We had a question from Joe that we never got uh, an answer for. Joe was asking, uh, I forgot, that's why. Uh, Why are repentance and baptism uh, always combined if baptism isn't required to be saved? Uh, Acts 2.38 is normally the passage of Scripture Or Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, We we need to understand the Jewish construct of the New Testament church. Uh, Jewish baptism was a public profession of faith. A baptism, John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, of preparation. Jesus said, uh, through the Apostle Paul, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. Well, the baptism was the early church's version, the Jewish version of public confession. Baptized for the remission of sins or baptized in Christ. It's letting the world know that I belong to Jesus Christ. So in the Jewish mindset, it, it means very simply, it would be expected that the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch 
um, hears about Jesus. They find some water on the road. Well, there's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? Nothing. Let's go do it. Um, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was baptized. Um, so, so baptism is not required to be saved. We get, we get baptized because we are saved. And this passage, another in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, while it's combined like that, we have to remember the Jewish construct of the events. Uh, we know that we're saved by faith through grace, um, by grace rather through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Uh, Romans chapter 10, again, if you uh, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth, the confession comes from uh, what you believe in your heart, then you're saved. So baptism isn't necessary to be saved. Baptism is something we do, Joe, because we are saved. Jesus said to do it. The apostles say to do it. It was practiced in the book of Acts. Uh, It's reiterated in the epistles. Um, it's a sacrament, one of two in the New Testament church, and only two, baptism and communion. So um, that's why they're combined in the early church. Uh, but make it very, very clear. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then he remember, remembered a couple, three people that he baptized. Um, if baptism was required, Paul would have been dunking everybody. So we believe and are saved. That's all. So I hope that helps you, Joe. Appreciate it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a difficult question. I've been avoiding this one for a week. Uh, it's from Skip. He says, Pastor Ron, what would you do differently today than when you started twenty years ago? Do you have any regrets? Uh, Skip, we we've pretty much done the same thing for our twenty two and a half years. So in, in terms of doing it, church structure, um, um, there's nothing I would do differently. Uh, our model here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, beginning in the 42nd verse. Uh, it's why we do what we do. It's why we will never stop doing it this way. As long as there's breath in this body, we're going to continue doing the same thing. Uh, I love the fact that when people visit, you know, they've been gone for 10 years or 15 years, and they're here in town, they come and visit. I love when they come to and say, you know, Pastor Ron, nothing's changed. I love that. That's a good, good thing. So there isn't anything I would do differently uh, than when we started 20 years ago. I do have some regrets, Skip. Um, um, I regret the time I wasted uh, obsessing over looking like a church. Uh, by that I mean having a building. Um, we've got a place that the Lord has provided. He's doing marvelous work, and I would have liked to have been content um, a lot sooner than I was. This is a lesson that took me a long time to learn. Uh, I think I've got it, but um, but maybe for the last 10 years, uh, I've been at that point where I'm just happy to be doing what I'm doing, regardless of what it is. Uh, I also regret um, maybe some of the ways that I dealt with people. In my early uh, years as a pastor, um, if somebody told me that God told them to do something, I'd let them know, my job is to help you do it, but if you do it, you can't ever quit. And a lot of times when people get discouraged or when they'd quit, um, uh, I would I would make it uncomfortable for them. Now, I still want to make it uncomfortable for people uh, to quit doing what they really believe God told them to do. 
so it's it's not that I would make it easy for them, but um, uh, there are some relationships over the years that 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 were severed because uh, people wanted me to tell them it was okay to quit and I wouldn't. Uh, I think if I had that to do all over again, I'd tell them, look, God doesn't want you to quit, but He loves you. He's not done with you, and God will raise up somebody else to do it. You see, God never needs any of us. And a lot of times, what I've learned in my later years as a pastor is that a lot of times um, when God replaces somebody with someone who wants to do it, uh, the person who quit because things got hard or because they got tired, uh, God will use what he does in the other person, the replacement, um, to sort of correct their heart. And probably, I don't know, this is 100% true, but, but, but more than likely it is, uh, I, I kind of felt like it was my job instead of let it be God's job. Um, so, so those are the only things that I can think of. Um, but I'm really proud of the fact, and I mean proud, I hope, in a godly way. I'm proud of the fact that our church, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, um, doesn't look any different uh, today than it did um, I mean, there's a lot more people, of course, but um, in terms of what we do and why we do it, uh, it's exactly the same as it was. The only difference um, in our church is that the, the pastor now is a lot older than he was back then. Maybe I'm a little wiser. Certainly, I love Jesus more than I did back then. Um, so I, I guess that's the best way, Skip, that I can answer the question. That's on the heels of another question that I hate uh, answering. Uh, this one's from Paul. He says, do you ever think about retiring? Um, my answer, Paul, is no. Um, but I have to also be very honest that as things change over the years, uh, as most of you know, I've gone through some um, pretty serious health issues this year. I'm fine now. But uh, that makes you think about things, but not retiring. Um, I, I tell people what I want to do is is have, uh, I want to do whatever I have the energy to do. Um, my desire to, uh, I haven't had any desire to slow down at all. Um, I, I, you know, I do three different Bible studies a week. And in addition to that, we have a pastor's discipleship class. By the way, Wes, uh, if you're ever in town on a Saturday morning, every other Saturday, uh, we have a, two-hour pastor's discipleship class with a pretty large group of people, uh, husbands and wives together. So that's real discipleship. I'm very straightforward. Uh, I think our next one is two weeks from this Saturday. Uh, this Saturday I'm going to be out of town. So, um, uh, no, the last one was scheduled on Joy of Jesus. So we, we canceled it. So it'll be uh, the 16th or something like that. But two weeks from this Saturday will be our next pastor's discipleship class. Uh, so, so I do a lot in addition to this radio show uh, every day, which takes some time before I get on the air. Uh, so uh, as long as I have the energy to do these things, I, I, I want to do them. I, I have no desire to, to um, take life easy. Uh, I want to go out flaming. Uh, I want to finish well. Uh, it's more important to me than perhaps anything else in my life. At this age, I'm 66, at this age finishing well is far more important to me than starting well. So, um, thank you. 
Uh, our next pastor's class is November 11th. That's not a Saturday, is it? No, because Veterans Day is not on a Saturday. Yeah. So anyway, it's two weeks from this this uh, this coming Saturday. And you can call the church office if you need more direction. Three um, six five eight eight three three seven. I almost gave you the phone number to the radio station again. We're inside four minutes, so um, here's another one I can ask and I answer quickly anonymously. Is it okay for a Christian to want to be rich? And does God want us to be rich? Uh, Anonymous, God doesn't care about you being rich at all. He cares about you being obedient. He cares about you submitting, surrendering to his will for your life instead of holding on to your will. Uh, It is okay for a Christian to be rich. Uh, The Christians that God gifts, the gift of generosity, uh, the gift of giving to, are people that he can trust with his money. Uh, So again, this goes back to motive. If you want to be rich, just to be rich. If you want to be rich, so life will be easy, so you won't have any financial pressure. By the way, if you get rich, you're going to have more financial pressure than you do when you're poor. Uh, I've been both, by the way. Um, Very, very rich before I got saved, and seemingly very, very poor ever since. Uh, When Paul and I renewed our vows, um, knowing that I was called to be a pastor, the pastor that performed the ceremony, when he got to the Paula for richer or for poorer part, he had to repeat it twice because he knew what going into ministry was going to be like. So uh, it's okay to be rich. Uh, we've got some really wealthy people in our church that are also very, very generous people. I'm sure we got some wealthy people that aren't generous as well. But, but the ones that are walking in the perfect will of God are those who understand that everything that God has blessed them with belongs to God. And they're good stewards. They ask God what he wants to do, wants them to do with his money. So uh, it's it's okay to be rich. I'm not so sure it's okay to want to be rich. By that I mean you'd have to check your heart and the motives of your heart and make sure that they line up with the motives of God for your life. Uh, but God does not want us to be rich. We're rich, uh, richer than anybody on this earth. You know, we've got... Um, now, even a, a, the world has a trillionaire. Uh, and I promise you, they're miserable, empty people apart from knowing Jesus Christ. Do they travel comfortably? Of course they do. But their life is filled with endless pain and problems. God wants us to be obedient. That's the only thing that matters to him, Anonymous. So if you're listening to somebody uh, who's telling you God wants you to be rich or wants you to be healthy, um, then then you're listening to a false teacher. So please get away from that. Final question today, another anonymous one. Uh, do you think it's okay to let your grown children live at home instead of making it on their own? Uh, generally, I don't know the circumstances, but generally, no, that's not okay. Um, we raise our children to, to, to grow up, uh, that they would be men and women of God. Uh, I think I'll leave this one on the board anonymous because I've got a lot more to say about it uh, in tomorrow's program. Hey, thanks for the call today. Good questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we will be back at 4 o'clock tomorrow to take your live phone calls and questions. Uh, tomorrow, Paula will be live with me in studio on the Date Day Editions program. Ladies, it's your day. We'd love to have your calls. See you tomorrow. 
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 